Good morning. The uh, I'm pretty overwhelmed singing that last song. <clears throat> kind of with one thought, or actually one family in mind. The bridge says, I won't bow to idols, I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me, <laughs> if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings, I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because death is just a doorway into resurrection life. If I join you in sufferings, then I'll join you when you rise. And you, when you return in glory, when all the, with all the angels and saints, my heart will still be singing. And my song will be the same. I can't think of probably more fitting words that would describe Sandy Stone dear friend of ours. Um, <laughs> she was kind of a lady that it was, if you didn't know her, she was kind of everybody's mom in a way. Uh, Dan and Sandy were the second pastors of this church. They were here for, help me out, 25 years, I want to say. 28 years. Thank you. Yes. And uh, <coughs> Sandy uh, went to be with the Lord this last week. Um, she was battling cancer and um, she passed away this last week, and that bridge really reminded me of, of her steadfast um, resolve to serve the Lord, even in death, serving the Lord, being an example, and uh, I text Dan this, we were texting back and forth the next day, and I said, uh, Sandy's example of a godly woman has encouraged generations, not just a person or two here or there. And there's several of you that have known her maybe even longer than I. I mean, my, my first experience, I'll get, I'll get this off of the emotional side a little bit. My first experience with Dan and Sandy Stone, I was probably maybe, I was just a kid. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember how old I was when they moved here. But I was out on the county road riding my bicycle, and this guy pulled up in this old, you know, uh, this old pickup and, and he rolled the window down, and he had this big, bushy, you know, yellow afro, and he says, hey there, are you a Hopkins kid? And I was like, uh, I think so. He says, I'm looking for your dad. I hear he wants me to help him coach baseball. And that was my first induction, introduction to the Stones. And Sandy's meant so much, and Dan and Sandy, the whole family's meant so much to this community, to this church. Uh, they were... Uh, absolute pillars and uh, 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 just great uh, leaders, pastors. He, he was a youth pastor at first, or they were, I should say, in, in youth ministry. Dan used to do this. This doesn't happen anymore. I can't think of anywhere this happens. The same time frame, when I was a kid, one of the first things that Dan did as a youth pastor is he started what was called the fifth quarter. You guys know what the fifth quarter is? Nobody knows what the fifth quarter is. Is that overtime? Well, not really. Kind of, but not really. They used to, Dan and Sandy tackled this on their own, after home basketball games or home football games in Chewila, they would open up the junior high gym for anybody that wanted to come out and hang out and play hoops, and they usually had some food, and, and he usually shared a little bit of Jesus with all these 
renegade kids like myself, you know, back in the mid-80s. And uh, that was part of, of, of how they built the culture uh, of, of this church. How they, it was one of the things that they did to impact so many people. And uh, definitely we will miss Sandy. Uh, but what a lady. What a lady. Uh, we definitely miss her. Okay. Can I share a story that's really, um, really interesting? Last night's um, potato feed and, and talent show, there was all kinds of, there was poetry, there was music, there was piano performance, there was, there was our youth worship team that's just been absolutely working their tails off, uh, practicing, and, and there was uh, young kids with, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think, what was the, what did, um, where's he at? He's not here. Brown bear, the little brown bear story. Brown bear, brown bear. Silas? Silas Maldonado, little tiny guy. Arthur, where is he at? He's downstairs. He's up here playing the ukulele, going at it, sing with his sister. Uh, there was all kinds of stuff. Uh, gymnastics, uh, there was comedy. Uh, where's, uh, the Ewans aren't here, but Forrest did a little comedy routine. Absolutely hilarious. There was speeches. Uh, there was a Rubik's Cube event, <laughs> and I'm going to put it at that. Uh, it was a great... <laughs> It was a great time. Everybody had a, a, a great time. It got me thinking, uh, uh, what's, what, what's my talent? I didn't do anything. I was in the back. Um, I'll tell you what my talent is. My talent's apparent. <laughs> Thank you, Mother. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. She, if you didn't hear what she said, she said eating. And she is not wrong. <laughs> right? She is not wrong. She told... She, one, of her, one of my mom's favorite, I'll tell on her, she got a little quip in on me today, so here it comes back, mom. One of her favorite stories is to say that when I was a toddler and learning to eat, that, that I would get fussy, not because of what I was eating, I would get fussy if she wasn't on one side of me and my dad on the other and shoveling from both sides. That's one of her favorite stories, so she's not wrong what she's saying. Fortunately for me, I have the microphone. No, my talent, I found out uh, Monday morning real early that my talent is losing car keys. Now, I base this all a little bit on the fact that the events of last night, especially with the losers of the Rubik's Cube competition, had to kind of get tough and, and, and consume something that probably did not taste very good. I'm just going to put it at that. Uh, and there's, uh, we're going to be talking about contentment, so hopefully I can weave this all together in something that looks halfway reasonable. Monday morning, I, we, Nathan Carlson and I, uh, best friend, guy we do business together, he's my partner in crime, we had a big trip planned Monday morning, bright and early. We left the dairy at daylight. We were headed to Ellensburg, then to Connell, then back to Moses Lake, and we had to be back in Harrington, if you, anybody know where Harrington is? A little tiny town south of Davenport. Everybody knows where Harrington is, right? Used to be a real hot spot in eastern Washington back in the day. Anyway, we had to be back in Harrington before the fertilizer company closed at 5 o'clock. So that was our day. So we set out real early, daylight, and we head out. We go over Addy, Sedonia. We drop down to 25. We go down to Two Rivers. We take the Creston Cutoff to Creston, uh, right out of Two Rivers there. And the reason why is is because we have this little breakfast nook called the Corner Cafe in Creston, Washington that we always stop and eat breakfast at. 
So Nathan, he, we, go, we load up. He says, hey, why don't you drive? And we're wearing our work clothes because this is a work trip. And so I have on a Carhartt hoodie with a front pocket. And that front po- now, just, just note this, put a pin on this. That front pocket's got a couple of holes in it. Okay? So we head out. I'm driving. We're talking all the way. We get to Creston. We get in there. There's, there's one other couple in the diner. And it's real early. The lady, she brings us coffee and menus and silverware. And uh, I said, oh, man, I need to go to the bathroom. So I uh, walk around the table. I go in. They just got these two little tiny bathrooms, just a commode and each. Ladies and guys. But anyway, I go in the guys. I got that right. And uh, I go in the guys' restroom. I do my business. I lean forward and flush the toilet. And as I lean forward, Nathan's pickup keys fell through the hole and right into the toilet. As it's flushing. Oh, yeah, I did. I did it, Brock. I went as far into that toilet to try to get those keys as these big mitts would allow. And I didn't get them. So now what do we do? It's early in the morning. No keys. And I come out of the bathroom and I am, I am, I'm seldom speechless. There's times I don't talk too much. My wife can fill you in on those details. But I I am like, uh, Nathan, your pickup keys just went down the toilet. (laughs) And Nathan says, he's giving me this kind of funny look. He's like, what are you talking about? And I grab my pouch and I'm like, the hole in my pouch. Truth be told, this hoodie is not even mine. It's actually his brother Bill's who left it at the farm. And farm clothes are fair game. I mean, if they fit you, wear them. And so I'd been wearing this thing for like a year. And uh, I said, they, they went through, they went down the toilet. And the lady in the, that owns the place, she come out, she said, what happened? So I told her. She says, you know, there's a, there's a clean-out right around back. Maybe they haven't made it past the clean-out. Oh, yeah, I did, Tony. For an hour. No, we didn't pull the toilet. You know, there's only one reason we didn't pull the toilet, because there was no hardware store in, in, in Creston, so there was nowhere to get a wax ring, or we would have. But we were kind of convinced they were somewhere in that 12-foot between the toilet and the clean-out. So I went in, as far as my arm would reach. That wasn't good. No keys. We ran a magnet up this thing. We put a magnet on a hose. We ran it up the pipe, both directions. No keys. Here we sit. Now, the good news is is that we're at the Corner Cafe. So there's plenty to do that we like to do, and that's eat. So... We spent an hour fishing for these things, and uh, as the story would have it, you say, all right, how did you ever get back to Addy? Uh, I didn't take the uh, stagecoach. Nathan called the guy that he bought this pickup from in December who lived in Airway Heights. The guy answered the phone. He says, you know, he says, I think I found an extra key for that pickup. So we called around. We found, we, uh, let's see, we called several different people, but we got a hold of Tammy. Tammy rearranged her whole day. She drove to Airway Heights. She grabbed the keys. She ran out Highway 2 to Creston. She gave us the keys. We put it in the ignition. What do you think happened, Jim? 
Who wants to? Let's vote. Can we vote? Did it start or did it not start? All right, it started. I'll, I'll spoil it. Yay! Now, here's where the story gets an interesting twist. And I know I'm pushing the limits because there's people that hold me to the standard that if you're not in the Word of God in a sermon in like, you know, how, what is it, 10 minutes? Five minutes. Austin's laughing because he knows, like, I'm really that guy. But here's where it gets interesting. Here's where the story turns interesting as we're standing there talking. And at this point, we're kind of getting a laugh out of it. And uh, we'd had breakfast while we were waiting for Tammy and all that. Uh, and yes, I did wash my hands 50 times. And still sat down and had breakfast. Um, we're standing there just before Tammy left, and uh, Tammy made this kind of uh, offhanded comment. She says, well, you just never know. She says, I know you guys' day is all screwed up, but you just never know what the Lord may have spared you from. And Nathan says, yeah, like the fruit stand story. I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, the fruit stand story. Like he was expecting me to remember what he's talking about. I don't understand what you're talking about. He says, don't you remember? He says, when we were kids, he said, I know you didn't go, but he says, don't, didn't my parents ever tell you this fruit stand story? He says, when we were kids, we went up on a trip up into Canada, and we went over to Republic, up through uh, Oroville, and there's all these fruit stands up in Canada, and Nathan's mom, Rosie, wanted to stop and buy some fruit, and, uh, <coughs> and she kept bugging Bob. She kept nagging him, you know, hey, stop at this fruit stand. Oh, here's another one. Eh, stop at this fruit stand. Bob was kind of determined to get to his friend's place that he wanted to go visit but he decided he said all right well we'll pull into this one and uh, Nathan said as they as a family and, and there was a they were in a blue van and there was a blue van fam uh, a family in a blue van right behind them they pulled into a fruit stand she spent maybe 15 20 minutes 30 minutes whatever buying boxes of fruit and then they got back down and headed out they went up and around the corner uh, several miles and when they went around this one corner uh, they came upon this accident where a log truck had pretty much had had killed everybody in that other van. And he says, <coughs> he says, you know, when you're a little kid and your parents say, don't look, what do you do? You look, you know, and so they were supposed to not be looking, but he turned his head and he says he remembered seeing, you know, bodies with blankets over them and just their feet hanging out. And he said, our family has kind of used that as a, as a, as a waypoint in life to say you never know what God is is doing uh, in, in, in your life. You never know about the, the delays. You never know about the, uh, the uh, you know, divine appointments that you may be a part of, the, the timing of it all. We don't see the whole picture. The question on the table to get going today is, and it's really what we want to focus in our little bit of time here, are we content with God's provision, whether it's timing, are we content with God's provision? Paul's going to talk specifically in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. He's going to talk about finances uh, a little bit. But are we content, are we a content follower of Christ uh, in really all things? Kind of the, the topic. We're going to kind of take the next several verses. We're not, we'll finish First Timothy this next week, but we're going to take these next few verses and look at this idea of contentment. All right, here we go. The overarching theme really of, of both, as I've said this before, of First Timothy and Second Timothy in Titus is, uh, or I use these three words, to persevere, to continue, and to endure. These three pastoral epistles, as they're called, 
Paul is, is really pressing both Timothy and Titus to persevere in the faith, persevere in ministry, to continue on, to, to press forward. He uses all this type of language to, to keep going, to keep going, to keep going. Uh, and <clears throat> there is a component where he says here in chapter 6, and we'll get to, that to keep going in that sort of a way in following Christ, you have to be a content follower. You have to be content in God's provision. You need to be content in God's plan of what's going on. And even when it's tough, even when it doesn't taste good, even when it doesn't, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I was not real content with my arm up a, su- a septic line up to the armpit. You know, that, that, that was not my favorite thing to do Monday morning to start the week. But in the big scheme, scheme of things, as we've kind of sit back and analyze and rather than just be frustrated, am I content in how God is just orchestrating the day? Am I content in what God is doing? Am I content to say, you know, uh, okay, okay, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand all the pieces and the, uh, the components. I don't, I don't understand why this would happen or that would happen. I don't understand why Sandy wasn't healed of her cancer and God chose to take her at this time. Uh, are we content with where God is leading and, and guiding, molding and shaping our lives? To persevere, to continue, and to endure takes a deep sense of contentment. Now, multiple times in chapters 1 and chapters 4, and then again here in chapter 6, Paul uh, fires off in his letters, encouraging Timothy to, to remain. That's a, kind of a, that idea of persevere and continue. But to remain spe- uh, specifically, to be steadfast and teach the truth. Just a little verse right from chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when you were in Macedonia, he tells Timothy, remain in Ephesus that you may charge... Some, that they teach no other doctrine. Throughout this letter, uh, Paul circles back, yeah, he circles back, and he, to remind Timothy that despite the fault teach, false teachers that are out there, uh, to remain faithful to preach and teach the Word of God, uh, refuting, essentially, with the truth. He's taking the truth, and he's refuting the error. That's the approach. That's the tactic. Stay with the truth. Despite what other people may say, despite what other people may do, we need to persevere with the truth, Timothy. So stay in there. So that's where we kind of, I want to point that out real quick as we dive into chapter 6. Turn in your Bibles there to 1 Timothy 6. We'll look at verses 3 through 5. Because Paul's going to come back and talk about these that, that are teaching falsely. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise, that's who he's talking about, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from which, from such, withdraw yourself. That's a pretty harsh uh, analysis on these guys that Paul lays out there for Timothy. 
He's emphasizing the seriousness of teaching what's correct and being able to discern what's incorrect. Saying, hey, don't even, like, if this is what these guys are into, don't even hang out with them. That's the warning at the end. Don't withdraw yourself. But this teach otherwise, Paul's wrapping up his thoughts here in this letter, this phrase here that anyone teaches otherwise, anyone teaching anything, here's how you can define that. Anything teach, anyone teaching anything that's out of step with the sound doctrine of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. The sound doctrine of the gospel. My personal belief is, is that I think that God inspired the writers of the Bible uh, to write in such a way that it could be easily understood by a young person. It doesn't take a PhD to understand what the Bible says. It doesn't take a, you know, a degree in seminary to be able then to share and, and articulate your faith, share it with other people, encourage other people. I, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think, that, I think that really at about a fifth grade, sixth grade reading level for the most part, you can, uh, you can pretty well work your way through the Word of God. There might be some things that are tough to understand, and there's probably a lot of big questions, especially, you know, uh, in some of the miraculous or some of the, uh, the uh, difficulty that happened, especially in the Old Testament, I think. But in summary, I think that it's pretty easy to understand. There's some indicators here of a false teacher that we want to look at. Four indications that somebody could potentially be a false teacher. The first one we've kind of covered, but I'll just mention it again. It's somebody teaching otherwise doctrines. They're out of step. They're out of step with the gospel. They're out of step with the apostles' teaching. It should be fairly easy to, to, to take uh, something that somebody is promoting or trying to say, hey, this is really it. I, I, I got this thing or I got whatever. And, and you put, just hold it up next to the word of God. Just filter it through what the Bible says, right? It should be pretty easy to do that. They're, they're teaching, they're a false teacher, they're teaching these otherwise doctrines. He calls them there in chapter 4, doctrines of demons. The second one is, is that teaching with unwholesome words. Unwholesome words, unhealthy words. Uh, I like to categorize it this way. Uh, words that destroy versus words that build up. Okay, Words that destroy, they're unhealthy. Anything that's unhealthy eventually is going gonna, is gonna to melt you down. right? Rather than things that build up. And so <clears throat> when you have somebody that's talking to you, when you have somebody that's sharing with you, uh, what's their approach? What's, what's the tone and tenor of their conversation? Is it constantly stuff that's just negative, 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 and there's no light, there's no good, there's, no, there's nothing wholesome about it, there's no, nothing that's positive? It's all negative, negative. We live in a culture that's really easy and acceptable. It's really acceptable in our culture to talk that way. So we look around us, and, and, and especially for believers even, like we're probably uh, as guilty as any. That we look around and see how much things have changed in our culture. How much uh, we've faded away. Let's just be honest. Let's just put a stake in the ground. We're in a post-Christian culture. We have to come to grips with that. We have to, we have to understand that, that that's the nature of, of the world that we're living in now. And it's different. It's different than the way we grew up. It's different than what we experienced as kids. 
It's different than what previous generations that have gone before us have always thought was and, and lived out in a situation where it's the norm. We live in that post-Christian culture. We have to be careful with our words that we don't just so focus on the negative side of that uh, that we kind of slip into this, this uh, category, if you will, of someone that speaks in unhealthy words, words that's all about destruction and build up. And you say, all right, Mark, what about, uh, you know, hey, I've read my Bible some. What about these prophets that had a pretty negative message? I get it. I understand that. There is plenty of time, even, even in the harsh realities of where things are, and you can be honest, and you can have a heavy word, and it can still not be unhealthy. It can actually be something that's very healthy. In other words, if one of these little kids strayed out on the highway, and you were going after them, you know, and, 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 and you just yelled out, Stop! I don't mean to scare anybody. But now everybody's awake. Right? That's the most healthy thing. That's harsh. That's a heavy tone. That's a big voice. I didn't even use my big voice. But uh, that's the most healthy thing that you could say to that young toddler that's just about ready to cross that white line, going across the pavement. That's different. That's not what we're talking about. A good solid rebuke, uh, exhortation, all of those things are, are actually very healthy for us. These are unhealthy words that tear down, that don't point to Christ, uh, that don't uh, support uh, the, the truth of the gospel. The third category is this teaching that is inconsistent. It's inconsistent with Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, and his message. That's what he's talking about there in verse 3. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, in the doctrine to which accords with godliness. So if it's out of step, if it's inconsistent with all that you read in the gospel, hey, I'd be careful, right? And there's a lot of stuff that's out there. There's a lot of stuff that's out there. There's a lot of stuff out there masquerading as something that would be part of the Christian faith that is a long ways from it because it's inconsistent with what Jesus said. I'll give you just one example real quick before we move on. There's a lot of people out there that uh, kind of uh, dabble in angel worship. Uh, it's, uh, it's a thing, I guess. I don't know. Not my thing. Hopefully not none of your thing. But there's a lot of people out there that kind of, kind of run this track, right, that, <coughs> that angels are a deity in some sort of a sense, and definitely, I guess, personally for them, that would be true. Uh, or they'd think it's true, right? But this idea of angel worship uh, is, uh, is one of those things. It's inconsistent. It's not what Jesus talked about. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through him. We have to stay consistent with what the gospel says. The fourth thing there, indicator of a false teacher, is this. is teaching that's out of step with general godliness. That's what I read that uh, last word there in verse 3 in chapter 6. Uh, I'll read the whole thing. If anyone teaches otherwise, so there's your first one, not consistent with wholesome words, there's number two, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, number three, and the doctrine which accords with godliness. So something that's teaching, some sort of a teaching that's out of step with general 
godliness, a good indicator that that person's coming uh, from the wrong spot, from the wrong perspective. There's kind of, uh, there's kind of four categories also that I want to throw in there <coughs> that I think explain a little bit of kind of the nature of, of people that come from a false doctrine perspective. And here's what they are. They all have a, they all have a D word. I don't know why that came out that way. There's deniers, there's disregarders, there's deluders, and there's deformers. A denier, uh, that's, that's one of the ways. Uh, they don't consent, back to that word. They don't consent with the truth because they deny God's word. They're the deniers. There's those that ignore the word of God, the disregarders. Those that ignore the word of God, just not interested. Uh, let me tell you something else. And then there's those that explain away God's word. They're the deluders. They're deluding the word of God uh, for a different reason, for some reason that uh, perhaps is self-serving. And then the fourth one is similar to that. There's those that twist God's word for their own benefit. They're the deformers. There's some sour fruit he talks about here. Sour fruit on the vine of false teachers. They're proud. They know nothing. They're obsessed with arguments that produce all of these Sour fruit, envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings, corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, he says. That's kind of the fruit on the vine, the sour fruit of false teachers. And then there's this last one, and this is where it turns into contentment, an issue of contentment. These people, as he says there, these people are those who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Worldly thinking is wrapped around this question, most times, uh, this question, how can I make a dollar off of this thing? That's the worldview mentality for, for uh, nearly everybody. Yeah, and, and let's be honest, we're no exception to that, right? Uh, <clears throat> and I'm not saying that making a dollar is wrong. I'm saying that those who suppose that godliness uh, is a means somehow to an end that's different than the end that God meant it to be, they fall into this category of false teachers. They fall into this category of people that are going to lead you and I astray. Uh, so a quick test, a quick test, you can ask this question, a quick test that reveals a lot is, uh, is money the motive for ministry? Is money the motive for ministry? Let me, maybe you could ask it this way. Uh, would, would such a person, would they do the same job for no pay or little pay? That really reveals a lot. We have some real high-profile, uber-wealthy people around the world that are in ministry, I'm not judging their motive, but if, they, if, if I could have a one-on-one conversation with a guy like Joel Olstein and, and get the truth, get an honest answer, I would ask him, would you do what you're doing if you were flat broke and, and pastoring a church of 20 people and working a regular job at the mill? Would you do that? 
Would you still do what you're doing? I, I'm curious to know what I don't. I'm not supposing what his answer is. I'm just saying he comes to my mind because he's one of the wealthier ministers and pastors in our country. But is money the motive? In other words, is, is being good, I'm really fighting this goofy thing. Is money the motive, you know, for, for why people are in ministry? Now, I'll lighten it up a, joke, a little bit with this joke. A friend of mine who uh, used to serve in ministry with way back a different church, uh, we would show up from time to time at a board meeting, <coughs> you know, and it was usually pretty lighthearted and having a good time. And uh, we get to razzing one another, you know, him and I. And, and he, says, uh, he says one time, he says, uh, you know what the difference is between you guys and me? And everybody's kind of looking at him, and he says, here's the difference. I get paid to be good, but you guys are good for nothing. <laughs> he was the pastor of the church. He says, I get paid to be good, but you guys are good for nothing. Now, he was joking. He wasn't. He, he's, guys have a tendency to banter back and forth, and it was funny. Uh, and uh, in a sense, in every joke, there's a little bit of truth. But in a sense, <laughs> that, that uh, there is some truth in that. In other words, he was, he was in ministry. He was getting paid. It was both his ministry and his occupation, you know. And, uh, and so there's always kind of that little, that little line. Paul's going to talk about what he would require here in coming verses. But just think about that. Would somebody do what they're doing for free because God asked them to do it? Or does there have to be a dollar attached the path to escape this mouse wheel of I gotta have more uh, is really found in the next verse. This, uh, I, I call it the mouse wheel because it's just this kind of this continuous go, 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 go and not really getting anywhere. This idea of supposing that godliness is a means of gain. Because Paul comes out with this answer there in the next verse. Look at verse six. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. He kind of, he kind of is a little play on words here. He's, he's, he wants to get Timothy refocused off of the negative of perhaps where some people are at, some people that are in ministry in that area of Ephesus and the surrounding towns, and get them back and focused on really, hey, here's where you need to zone in. Here's where you need to uh, really lock in. That word here for contentment, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That word there is this word. It's only used twice in the Bible, this particular word. Uh, it means sufficiency. It means sufficiency. Now, godliness with sufficiency is great gain. The other place that it's found is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, where Paul tells the Corinthian church in his second letter, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you... Always having all sufficiency in all things. Always having all sufficiency in all things. You could say that. You could take that. It's the same Greek, Greek word. Our English words are different, but you could read it. Always having all contentment in all things. In the Greek, it would mean the same thing. May have an abundance for every good work. Godly lives that are content with God's provision... Uh, that's where you find the real gold. That's where the real treasures are in life, in the Christian walk. That's where the real treasures are in ministry. 
But let me tell you this also before we go any further. That's also where the testing is. Because if you sell out to this idea that I'm going to rely on the Lord for everything, I'm going to rely and I'm going to learn and discipline myself and receive power from the Holy Spirit to be content all through life in every situation, what you're going to find is you're going to find a series of tests in your life. Is it true? I think God wants to know, is that true of you? Do you find contentment in all things, or you just want to stay on the mouse wheel and keep running? It's true of me. I'll say that it's true of me. Right? Because i never seen, I, I share an affinity with my brother Ed over here, i never seen a piece of equipment that I didn't look at and say, wow, how could we incorporate that into what we're doing? Right? So there's always that test there. There's always that, tr- that thing there that they have to analyze. God, is this your will and not my will? Because my will would keep raising my bitter card. <laughs> let's buy it, let's buy it, let's buy it. You know? And uh, that's why when I go to an auction, <coughs> I go with other people with a bitter card so that I can sit there and prod them a little <laughs> and say, Josh, keep bidding. Right? you got to learn to be content. That's where the real gold is. That's where the real gold is. It's finding sufficiency in Christ. Paul knew uh, really this kind of contentment firsthand. Here's his testimony. I'll read a couple of verses from the book of Philippians. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regard to need. He says this. He says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I've learned in whatever state I am. He's not talking geographically, boys. He's not talking about being in Washington, Idaho, Georgia, or Tennessee. It's not that state. It's whatever situation I'm in, I've learned to be content. So it doesn't matter. And he explains it. I know how to be abased, and I know how to be abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Then the famous verse that's often misquoted and written on everybody's football cleats, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you when you're in that situation of being content. That's like all of the context for that. So when you see it just out there by itself, that verse, verse 13, uh, it can mean a lot of things to different people. But what it means to the Lord What it means to God's people is, is that you've found your sufficiency in whatever He has for you. And He makes up the difference. And He pours out the grace. And He he does crazy things. Right? He does crazy things. We're still using a tractor that my grandparents bought brand new in the mid-70s. Of course, it's a John Deere, so it has a long shelf life. But it's got like, I don't know, 13,000 hours? It's still rolling strong. Hit the key, fires right up, right? The temptation to replace that with something newer, bigger, faster, stronger, something that's meatier, you know, flashy. Hey, it's still getting it done. You have to learn to be content. Learn to be content. Paul says, I've learned. So it's a process. It's a series of tests. That's what he means. I've learned to be content. He didn't learn it on the page. He learned it doing life and trusting in God. He learned it doing life and trusting in the Lord. Consistent theme amongst the early church leaders was always this attitude of contentment with the Lord's provision. 
Paul goes on to describe there in 1 Timothy, back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 in the next three verses, verses 6 through 10. Paul goes on to describe kind of this difference between contentment and discontentment. Now, <clears throat> before I go on, I always thought was this was just one of my mom's sayings when I was a kid, verse 7. Uh, and it was usually wrapped around uh, a situation where I was in trouble. But Paul tells Timothy what my mom used to tell me, for we brought nothing into this world and certainly we can carry nothing out. That's the reality of where life is. And having food and clothing, he says, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into, tem into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Uh, on its, by itself, money is neutral and neither good nor evil. Desire for money, then, is a different matter. Desire for wealth, uh, the, 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 this uh, unquenchable drive to be wealthy that our culture and really the world in a lot of ways is kind of drunk with is where everything goes off the rails. Paul says that the love of money has this devastating effect on a person's life. Not the money itself, but it's the motive. It's the love. It's the desire. That's what has the dev devastating effect. A few supporting verses. I love it when the Bible kind of just has its own commentary on itself. So I'll go backwards in the Old Testament. Read a few verses here that talk about the same concept here. Psalm 37, 16 through 17 says, A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arm of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. You see the contrast. Proverbs 15, 16, Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. You see the contrast. Proverbs 16, 8, Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. You see the contrast. Paul's saying the same thing and what he's saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The last one out of Proverbs 20 verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will, <coughs> will not be blessed at the end. So there's a contrast there. There's this idea that, that and, I, and I've seen this, I've seen this so many times. I've seen so many times where, where people have, uh, <coughs> you know, hypothetically, whatever, gotten in a bad car wreck or, or something happened to grandma or mom and dad or something happened, and, and, and young people, specifically happens to young people, but I'll just leave it at that. They inherit a great sum, but they don't have the perspective on how to handle it. So after about two or three years, you know, and buying all kinds of toys and goodies, uh, frankly, a lot of stuff that depreciates in value, it's gone. It's gone. An inheritance gained hastily. Uh, this idea that, that, that people are, are in love with, you know, striking it rich in whatever capacity. Um, lottery, the whole thing. All of it. Uh, 
you know, our, our, I'll pick on older folks for just a second. <coughs> we drove south, so don't be offended. Uh, and if you are offended and you're older, as long as I can kind of get to the door in the parking lot, I'm in good shape, I think. Probably outrun most of you. There might be a few that run me down, but <coughs> that's because I have a bad back. But uh, our, uh, We drove to Arizona, and we stopped a few times. And the, some of the places there, like you just get south of, uh, where is it? Idaho Falls, no, not Idaho Falls, Twin Falls. So we're driving down, uh, and you just get into Nevada, and the only place to stop and get anything to eat is a casino. And like, they're just stuff full. Like, our older generations are, are absolutely stuffing the casinos completely full. Uh, it's, it's, it's an epidemic in this country that really nobody's talking about. Nobody's talking about it. Yeah. And uh, where's it going to go? What's it going to do? What's the secret to contentment? What's the secret to contentment? I better, I better hustle. First, we need to understand that we are stewards of what God has given us, what we've been given by the Lord. Uh, that's what Paul's talking about. We can't bring anything in, and we can't take anything out. So possessions... Uh, by nature, they're temporary. What you obtain in this life is temporary. It's completely temporary. You didn't bring it with you. You're not taking it with you when you go, right? So it's completely temporary. We need to see that uh, it comes to possessions. We start at zero. We end at zero. We have to have the biblical view that we have a stewardship role with what God has given us. That's the first part. The second part is, is we really kind of just need to get back to the basics. Uh, Paul strips, and that's, I, I get that, that idea from this idea, that Paul strips everything down to the absolute basics, food and clothing. That's what he's good with. He's good with just food and clothing. That's what he says here. Now, uh, Jesus took it a step further. He really kind of, ahead of time, kind of put the bar even higher than even Paul did with food and clothing. Jesus says in Luke 12, 22 through 34, he talking to his disciples, he says, therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life. Notice, notice the Jesus perspective in these verses as I read them. Don't worry about, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body or what you will put on. So he's really uh, got the bar way higher than even what Paul says is needed. Life is more than food, <coughs> and the body is more than clothing. Jesus says, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which are neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you th than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit to his stature? Right? Who's going to get taller? If any of you, <clears throat> if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. That's quite a statement. Solomon, the richest man in the world, uh, <clears throat> the greatest wealth uh, was handed to Solomon, the, the king of Israel after his father David. Solomon who built the temple. Solomon that, that had his dad's download of all of the intricacies of the temple that was to be built. Solomon built, he kind of continued in a sense, uh, had it all. And uh, Jesus says, you know what, not even Solomon, like it, compared to the flowers and the grow wild out in the mountains? Solomon doesn't even hold a candle. 
He says like this, he says in 28, he says, if, <clears throat> if then God so closes, clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Jesus warns us not to have an anxious mind. The anxious mind is the opposite of contentment. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. If you wonder where I get my uh, uh, comparative worldview thoughts, it's from verses like verse 30 here. For all the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. Then Jesus says, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things should be added unto you. There's a priority when it comes to learning to be content, and that priority is very simple. It's a one, two-step process. One, two, boom, boom. If you want to learn contentment, if you want to live the Christian life being content, your number one step is to seek the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And then step number two is, is your gracious, loving, benevolent, heavenly Father takes up all of the details on your behalf. Right? That's not to say that we could sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and watch Netflix. I'm not saying that. I don't think Jesus is saying that. Right? It's not that. It's not that, that, it's not that God's graciousness to us then is a means for us to be lazy. No, we're, we're called to work. We're called to engage the culture. We're called to, to be out there, to be active. Absolutely. But God takes care of the details, Jesus says. That's what his Father does. He says in verse 32, do not fear. Opposite of being anxious, or opposite of being content. It's fearful. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide <clears throat> yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where there's no thief, where, <clears throat> where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. And then the famous verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. That's the Jesus picture on contentment. Don't worry, don't be anxious, don't fear. Uh, don't operate the way the world operates. They fret, they fear about their survival. They're stressed out about uh, interest rates and so on and so forth. If God takes care of all creation, he's going to take care of you. And here's the reason why. You and I are his image bearer. We bear the image of God. We're at the top, uh, not like the Discovery Channel says, we're at the top of God's priority in the world. Let's just be honest about that. That's what the Bible says. We're the part of creation that bears His image. He calls us to focus on His kingdom, to seek the kingdom, to build the kingdom. God wants to, He says right there, He's going to give you the kingdom. That's His good pleasure. Contentment, then, is really a kingdom attitude and a reality. As opposed to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition there is the word for hell. So the love of money has a, has a, is a, like taking a, 
huge anchor and attaching it to your feet and then deciding, oh, let's go for a swim, and we just dive out of the boat. That's the way the love of money works in people's lives, right? It has a drowning effect, Paul says, a drowning effect. It takes them to destruction. When Satan tempted Jesus, remember this in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I didn't write it down. I wrote a reference, but I didn't put it all out to be on the board. Jesus' third temptation that, that Satan presented him with was a desire to be rich. He took him to a high place. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, right? All of this can be yours, Jesus. All of, all of this can, a little whisper, all of this can be yours, Jesus. You just got to do one thing. I just need you to worship me. I, 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 just, I just need you to bow your knee one time to me. Jesus said, no way. No way. Why did he say no? Because Jesus is the essence of, con of contentment. He was content with the Father's plan. Even knowing where that plan was going to take him down the road, he was content with the Father's plan. Remember, the Lord has created you and I as image bearers. Men were the First uh, Corinthians eleven seven. I just have a, a footnote of where it comes from. But Paul's telling the Corinthians church. We looked at this several months ago. Men, we're the image and the glory of God. Paul says, and ladies, you're the the glory of man. In other words, you're. I like. I heard somebody put it this way recently. Ladies, you're the glory of the glory. You're the best of us in that sense, right? The glory of the glory. Is God going to leave his image bearers hanging? I don't think so. Is God going to uh, uh, accidentally not provide for you this week? I don't think so. Right? I don't think so. <laughs> I've seen that happen Monday morning. God provided, God provided all that Nathan and I needed, and he was working out all those details before we even got on before he even got on the phone. We didn't go to Ellensburg. We didn't go to Connell because we didn't need to go to Ellensburg and Connell. Rather, Nathan said, maybe I'll just call these guys and talk to them. And he wanted to look at some equipment. He wanted, he wanted to put eyeballs on it, you know, and he wanted me to go with him. But he called, and both of these guys, they had great conversations. These guys were super honest, straightforward, you know. And, and, uh, and, and after he got off the phone with the... Uh, with the second guy, he says, wow, he says, I guess God just had a different plan for our day. And we actually went a whole different route. We just went to basically, we went to Harrington and then down to Moses Lake. So we had to go backwards a little bit. But uh, that was part of God's plan. That was part of God's plan. Is God going to leave us, his image bearers? Is he going to leave us hanging? I don't think so. God knows what we need. Are we content with his provision? We need to stay focused on the kingdom of God. We need to check our hearts. Our treasures are, are, are the treasures that we're seeking eternal or temporal? We need to be, check our hearts. You look at you. I'll look at me. We talk about it as a group. He says, godliness with contentment. Paul says, godliness with contentment is really the great 
game. David, will you come on up and lead us in communion? The worship team will follow with our closing song.